Blog Talk Radio. Hey there. Time for another edition of Helping Behaviorally Challenging Students. This is Dr. Ross Green coming to you live from the Offices of Lives in the Balance here in Portland, Maine. Welcome to the program. We do this every week um, and talk about how to solve problems collaboratively and better understand students with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges. Glad you were able to join in. Um, You may know this already, but the second annual Lives in the Balance conference was held three days ago in Portland. And uh, yes, we are making an annual event out of this. And um, almost 400 people were there, which is about double what we had in our first year. And we will be posting video of the highlights of the conference on the Lives in the Balance website just as soon as we possibly can. My goal is to um, broadcast next year's conference live, Um, but we'll see about that when the time comes. It's actually not that hard to do. Um, But what a great day it was. Um, I talked about this on the parents program as well. Um, Our keynote speaker, one of them, was Richard Ross, who, as I've spoken about before on this program, came to us from Santa Barbara, California, um, where he is uh, on the faculty at UC Santa Barbara, and he's been commissioned by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, or at least funded by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, to um, document in photos juvenile detention settings uh, in the United States. And um, as I mentioned on the parents program this morning, very poignant photos that really do raise some very important questions and issues about um, how we treat the neediest and most vulnerable kids in our society. Um, uh, We then heard from Barry Studley, who's the Associate Commissioner of uh, Juvenile Services in the Department of Corrections in the state of Maine, to hear about how Maine has responded to the needs of behaviorally challenging kids who end up in that system. Uh, the last issues in mental in children's mental health program focused on that issue where I interviewed Jeff Morin, who's the acting superintendent at uh, one of the two juvenile detention facilities in Maine. And then last week I also participated on Maine Public Radio in a discussion with Maine Senator-elect Ann Haskell, and an uh, attorney who works with behaviorally challenging kids, um, Ned Chester, uh, we had a discussion on Maine Public Radio about who these kids are and how we can respond to them better, something I think Maine is doing an admirable job of doing these days, so admirable that the effort has actually found its way into Maine's uh, public schools, as many of you know. 
Um, and what we heard about for the rest of the conference was the work that's been going on in Maine's schools, and that's some of the most exciting video that will be posted on the Lives in the Balance website as soon as we can get it up there, uh, including data from the schools, um, but also including some very poignant uh, video of uh, teachers and um, parents and kids who have benefited from the model in those buildings. So we're working as quick as we can to get that at least some of the video up on the Lives in the Balance website within the next two or three weeks. I'll certainly let you know when it's up there. Um, one of the things that came out of the day was um, a few people asked that I do a radio program on the key themes of the model. Um, because uh, the themes, some of them have remained constant over time, but some of them have changed over time. And so um, I was thinking that we might do that today uh, if we have time. But we do have a caller already, and callers take top priority on this program. So I'm going to bring our caller on the air from area code 604. I think that's British Columbia, if I'm not mistaken. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. Hi, Ross. Good. Am I right Susan. about the British Columbia part? You are right about British Columbia. Cool. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. It's raining up here today, but I'm fine. <laughs> uh, we have beautiful but cold weather here on the other end of North America today. Oh, nice. Very nice. Tell well, me what's on your you mind. Well, I met you, Ross, at our recent conference that we had here in North Vancouver, and I am the principal of a, a very inner-city school. I and know who you about, are. Yes. <laughs> we have about 440 students here, and uh, we have figured out a way for us to uh, do CPS with our students, and um, we're really happy about that. And at this time, we're probably working with about 23 students in our school, on uh, sort Good of plan B, yeah, we're really we're really really excited about it. We have I have as I think you know we brought I brought nine teachers with me, who are currently involved in either doing plan B or wanting to know more about it. My counselor is amazing. He is so on board with um, your program and the CPS model that we have actually adopted it at our school, which is amazing for us. So we um we've got a lot of things on the go and we are working on you know doing the um the alsaps and those things um which is going much better but it's taking us quite a while to do the alsaps with our teachers and we usually have either the childcare worker in there with them and our counselor and it's taking longer than 50 minutes and we're kind of wondering is there a way mm. to speed this up and I have this is just a personal note I've I've noted for me, that if I have the chats with the teacher ahead of time, not doing the ALSAP, but just having a chat, letting them get it out about all the issues that they're having with the kids, that when we do get into the meeting where we've covered for the teacher to go through the ALSAP, it, it seems to go quicker, but it's still taking us at least an hour and a half. Do you have any suggestions on that? Well, it's an interesting issue. Um, part of me, and this isn't going to be the answer you're looking for, Okay. But I'll say it anyways. Part of me isn't um, upset that it's taken an hour and a half to talk about a pretty complicated kid. Okay. Um, complicated kids take longer to talk about. I don't know if that's why they're taking an hour and a half. It 
um, if they if the meeting is being run by someone who hasn't facilitated many discussions using the ALSIP before, that can take longer. Um, it's usually run by our counselor who is very familiar with it. Got it. But, so, but I think the problem is, is that teachers try to theorize what's going on, and so it's uh, really hard for them to not do that. Well, and that's the other potential possibility, and that is that the 50-minute estimate of how long the discussion should take mm-hmm. is based on the assumption that there is virtually no theorizing, hypothesizing, and storytelling going on. Mm-hmm. That's what takes up an enormous amount of time in meetings. And um, what I have found with um, educators who I've worked with very closely is that their initial meetings, when they're trying to use the ALSIP, take forever, Mm -hmm. like even longer than an hour and a half. Or they only have an hour, but they only get past the first one or two lagging skills. Yes. And it's always for the same reason, and that is that they spent – the rest of the time, theorizing, hypothesizing, and storytelling. All right. things that aren't really the best use of our time. Um, and quite frankly, the theorizing and hypothesizing tends to be wasted time because we're going to figure out what's really going on when we get to the empathy step uh, when we're doing plan B with a kid. Right. And so that's, if you ask me, the most common reason meetings take longer, the discussion takes longer than 50 minutes, it's that the meeting was filled with theorizing, hypothesizing, and storytelling. And so Mm -hmm. with the folks who I've helped get the meeting down to 50 minutes, what we've gotten rid of is theorizing, hypothesizing, and storytelling. Now, they often have some interesting reactions to that. And so it's up to the meeting facilitator Mm -hmm. to really keep people on track. Yes. I mean, that... now. Um, and that means that when people start theorizing, and this mm-hmm. can come off as a little mm, rude, but it can be done in a way that's not rude. Mm-hmm. First, the meeting facilitator needs to let people know that we are going to be trying to do as little theorizing, hypothesizing, and storytelling as possible, and that we're really going to try to stick to lagging skills and unsolved problems in our discussion. Right. When people get used to that, the meeting only takes 50 minutes because then what I've heard happen in these recordings that I've listened to is people in the meeting start saying, uh-oh, we're theorizing. Oh, that's, yeah. just, that's a hypothesis. Uh, do okay. we really want to listen to that story for the next 15 minutes? Mm-hmm. Um, and so once people in the meeting start getting good at it, uh, it's the, the, meet, the pressure's off of the meeting facilitator. But in the beginning, the meeting facilitator probably needs to let people know we're really going to be trying to stick with lagging skills and unsolved problems in our meeting. And that means I'm going to try to really keep a lid on theories, hypotheses, and stories. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I've had some interesting reactions to that, by the way. I've had meeting facilitators say to me, aren't people going to get mad? If we, isn't that what they expect to do in meetings? Yeah. And my answer is, well, that may be what they expect to do in meetings, but that doesn't mean that what they expect to do in a meeting is the most productive use of the time for the meeting. And the answer to the aren't they going to get mad part is I've never seen anybody get mad that we were curtailing 
theorizing, hypothesizing, and storytelling. It, it may be what people are accustomed to, but it really is up to the meeting facilitator to make this meeting as productive as possible and to right. guide people about the type of in- – truth is – is, I should finish the sentence – about the type of information that we really want to focus on in the meeting because I find that often there isn't a great deal of guidance, not only that. Okay on what we should be focused on in the meeting. But not only that, um, um, the things that some of the paperwork that is often associated with these meetings focuses on mm-hmm. is often the wrong stuff. Some yeah. of that paperwork would have us focused on behavior. Right. Some of that paperwork would have us focused on answering the question, why? And a lot of the of what's supposed to be accomplished in the meeting is coming up with solutions. Right, which we don't want to do. <laughs> but that means that um, yeah. this is just when there is a guide for what these meetings should entail, when mm-hmm. there is a guide for the content of the meeting, it's often oriented around behavior adult explanations for the behavior, and adult-generated solutions for what they are theorizing is getting in the student's way. Right. And, and we've tried a very we've, productive meeting. Sorry, no, We've tried really hard to get around that by um, the teachers coming in and speaking with me first and going through all the storytelling and doing all that stuff so that when they get to the meeting with with our counselor as their facilitator, it should go much quicker, but it still carries on. And I, I truly believe that people need to be validated and be, be heard. But when we're doing the ALSAP, it's, I think we're just going to need to say, you know, no theorizing, no storytelling, no hypothesizing. We just need to That's, get down to the basics. Well, the big question is, um, I think that people can be validated mm-hmm. and can be heard if we're talking about lagging skills and unsolved problems. I mean, what they're okay. mostly looking for validation on, I mean, it takes 12 and a half seconds to talk about the behaviors the kid is exhibiting when he's mm-hmm. looking bad, 12 and mm-hmm. a half seconds. And we don't need long stories about those behaviors. If, if people really want to know what the kid is looking like when he's looking bad, we can take 12 and a half seconds to focus on the behaviors he's exhibiting. But maybe there's five or six of them, tops, mm-hmm. yeah. running, screaming, calling out answers. We, we could talk about behavior for 12 and a half seconds. That's not going to put a major dent in the meeting. The thing I'm not interested in validating, So, and, and other things I would be interested in validating, are the teacher's frustration, Yes. the teacher's sense of desperation, the teacher voicing concerns about all the other kids that are in there and how disruptive this one is, and I I think that, and I'm not being flip about this, but I think teachers can be validated related to their frustration and how hard it is in a minute. Mm -hmm. I don't need to spend all 60 minutes doing that. I could spend a minute doing that, and the teacher or the parent or the staff member, whatever kind of meeting this is, would know that we hear them and that we know how hard this is. Yeah, I agree. Now I've spent 72 minutes. 72 seconds validating how hard this is and I'm not being I'm not being flip about that at all I'm not dismissing how hard it is it is very hard 
to have a behaviorally challenging student or several, given um, your setup. It sounds like it would be several in the same classroom and how hard it is to deal with it. That's, that's, I can validate that and mm-hmm. hear what the kid is doing when he's looking bad in, in about 72 seconds. Mm-hmm. Here's what I don't want to validate. I'm actually, I have no interest at all in validating the theories and hypotheses. Okay. I don't want to validate those because they are, I find, that our theories and our hypotheses are actually often wrong. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's true. So if the teacher is saying, I think that he's having these difficulties because his parents are going through a difficult divorce, I would certainly want to say, well, that's awful that his parents are going through a difficult divorce, but I actually wouldn't want to give any impression whatsoever that I believe that that is an accurate explanation for why this kid is having a difficult time under certain conditions. Because one of the important things about this meeting especially when we're covering unsolved problems, is that challenging kids aren't always challenging. They're only sometimes challenging. Mm-hmm. That's important because like a, lot of, right, a lot of the <clears throat> explanations we use for why a kid is looking bad, parents divorce, adopted, prenatal exposure to substances, mm-hmm. I'm often very hard-pressed to explain why those are affecting the kids sometimes and not others. But yeah, I have an easy I, time yeah. explaining. Sorry, I have, an, I have an easy time explaining why the kid's lagging skills would be getting in the way sometimes and not others, and that's because the skills are being demanded sometimes and not others. True. Yeah, it's true. It's it's a really interesting process for sure, and I know we've certainly bought into it, and we love it. Um, and it has. So we're going to find a way. For, I keep interrupting you. Sorry. Keep, so go ahead. Okay. I was just going to say that. Um, we 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 are loving it. We have actually had many successes with kids with sort of less lagging skills. That's for sure. But we have had successes because we've been doing this. This is our second year, and three of them. I just noted. Like I I just wrote down all the kids' names. The twenty three of them, and we had twenty six that we were working with, and three of them we don't even need to work with anymore because they are just behaving in a way so that they can learn and they they want to learn. So it's fantastic. Good for you. And and you and I have discussed ways to see if we can give you even more help. Yes. Yeah. And that's something I think you emailed me about that, yes? I did. I did. You have to forgive me. I don't think I responded yet, did I? No, but that's okay. We're all busy. I get it. No, the issue is that the conference was last week and it okay. took me away from everything. Mm-hmm. But I am now in catch-up mode, and you'll be hearing from me this week because I think, That'd be great. I think I've got an offer you won't be able to refuse. Awesome. I know my teachers are excited. Me and it's too. So, it's so cool to have nine teachers on a staff. Well, we've got quite a few teachers, but that are spreading the word about how it's working for them. And th- I think that they just feel very supported, which is my job. So it's it's a good way to do it, that's for sure. I'm also applying for another grant so we can get some more time, and it'll be good. Fabulous. And, and by the way, I don't want to, before you go, I don't want to dismiss yeah. the possibility that one other reason that the meetings could be taking longer okay. than 50 minutes, and we talked about this briefly, is that it could be that you have some very complicated, complex kids. We do. And 
if you have a complicated, complex kid, it could take longer than 50 minutes to have the discussion with the ALSIP as the discussion guide. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's fabulous because complicated, complex students take a little bit longer to discuss and a little bit longer to understand. So if you were saying to me, it's taking, we are not theorizing, we are not hypothesizing, mm-hmm. we are not telling stories, it is taking us an hour and a half to talk about the lagging skills and unsolved problems of the very complicated students in our building, mm-hmm. I would say, I'm sorry it's taking an hour and a half, but I'm really glad you're finally getting down to it with those kids. Yeah, I, I am too, and I, I think one of the reasons that our teachers are also so involved is because we give them time throughout the day, and we free them up to be able to come to meetings, and it, it's just really working for us. Uh, we fought doing really it. hard. You're we're doing, doing it. it. We are. So we're you. really happy. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for calling in, and I will be in touch this week. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Um, proof that, and not that you needed it, but proof that solving problems collaboratively is happening in many different places, British Columbia, a lot of uh, the model is going on in British Columbia, um, as well as in Alberta, Calgary. I'll be in Edmonton next week, a talk that's not posted on the uh, website because it's not necessarily open to the public. Kingston, Ontario, the week after that, another one that's not posted. Um, A lot of solving problems collaboratively going on. Lots in Ontario. Um, Saskatchewan. I was just in uh, Nova Scotia a few weeks ago. It's happening. We do have the ability to understand behaviorally challenging kids. As you'll see in one of the videos that will be posted on the Lives in the Balance website, one of the uh, classroom teachers who's been using the model with some very behaviorally challenging students of hers, she's saying in the video, we have the power to change lives. And then she's saying, now why wouldn't anybody want to do that? It's there. We can do it. Let's do it. Some very moving videos that I will be shooting even more of. Um, Thanks for your call. You know, now here's the deal. I'm always grateful for calls, so I'm glad we just talked about that. I was going to do key themes today, but um, now we don't have time for key themes, which is actually a good thing. So I'm going to answer an email that we got um, this week. Uh, By the way, I don't know if I gave you all the call-in number, 646-727-2691, who knows, maybe we'll get another caller today, but here's the email, this is a goodie. Uh, Dr. Green, I am a retired teacher mentoring a new teacher. The school uses PBIS. 
My mentee has 25 fourth graders, including special ed and ELL students. It is a tricky class with strong personalities. The most challenging student has a school reputation of being the most difficult. He has no special services and takes meds for ADHD. He has been suspended two times this year for mouthing off to the principal and for running across the desktops when the behavioral resource person came to remove him from the classroom. The student is at or above grade level in all academics. My mentee thinks that these episodes could be related to meds not taken. Good theory. Actually, I like that theory. The first day of school, the student began putting down a classmate. When told that kids don't do that in his classroom, he cleared the top of a bookshelf and left the room. The SW, I think that means social worker, returned him and he held it together that day. As the year has progressed, my mentee adjusts expectations for this student and allows him to draw and make paper-throwing stars most of the day to avoid blow-ups. Do as many word problems as you want. Sit with learning group, but don't participate. Ignore student when he doesn't come to morning meeting or clear his desk. Read to self or not. I meet, I meet with my mentee four hours a month and have introduced CPS, but he seems too overwhelmed to take on this thinking that is different from the school's PBIS-centered approach. We did the ALSIP and made a plan to talk to the student about coming MM. I don't know what that means. Hmm. Well, whatever it means. He did not do it. I sent him links to your videos online. He did not look at them. What do you think? I sh ah, there it is. MM is morning meeting. About, I think. What do you think I should do? Hooey. Um... I love the question. You, you, what should you do? I think I would uh, do Plan B with the mentee. I've noticed that because you're doing some theorizing, um, you're doing some theorizing about why. Oh, that's what MM is, morning meeting. How come I didn't get that? Um, you're doing a meaningful amount of theorizing about what could be going on with the person you're supervising as it relates to why they aren't trying to solve problems collaboratively with the student. And boy, is there a universe of reasons that somebody might not give this the old college try. Um, I've noticed that when we talk about solving problems collaboratively with this very difficult student, it doesn't seem to be something that you're doing. What's up? That's what I do. I love a good theory every bit as much as the next guy. 
but I find it far more efficient to just ask. How, how come you're not uh, doing this? What's getting in your way? Uh, I mean, it could be because the PBIS system in the school is not being done in a way that is congruent with solving problems collaboratively. Could be that he's too overwhelmed. Um, I think we should ask. We won't know until we ask. Um, I will say uh, learning how to solve problems collaboratively with the most difficult student in the building could be um, like jumping into the frying pan on your first go and course that's a theory too i think you know what let's ask I, I could probably spend the rest of the program theorizing let's ask and if you want to email back and let me know what you find out but now let's talk about the rest um suspending the fourth grader isn't going to fix anything if his meds are off or if he's not taking them. Suspending him isn't going to solve any of the problems that I'm hoping you identified on the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. goes without saying that having the uh, behavior resource person remove him from the classroom is an action that is taken when things are already bad, but not an action that would keep things from getting bad again the next time. I wonder what's going on with this kid. He's at or above grade level in all academics, um, no special services. Um, Sounds like the things he's doing that get him suspended, mouthing off to the principal and running across the desktops when the behavior resource room person comes to remove him, those are things that occur after an unsolved problem has already set in motion a challenging episode. Um, it sounds like we have been relying rather heavily on Plan C, removing expectations. I'm reading that uh, the student is allowed to draw and make paper throwing stars most of the day. Um, he can do as many word problems as he wants. He can doesn't have to participate in a learning group. He doesn't have to come to a morning meeting or clear his desk. He can read to himself or not. That sounds like Plan C, almost exclusively, accompanied by Plan A, when we do want something from the student, or when all of that Plan C isn't going well. Luckily, there's that third option, and that's the one you've been trying to get your mentee to do, and it's not happening. Well, we already know what we're going to do with that. We're going to find out why. But um, I can think of one circumstance in which um, all that Plan C, almost exclusively Plan C, might be a good idea, 
at the uh, Lives in the Balance conference three days ago, one of the uh, school principals from a building in which the model has been implemented over the last two years um, with just fantastic results. This is probably the most humane building you'd ever want to step foot in. What a great group of people. She was um, talking to the assembled participants, and this will be shown in video on the Lives in the Balance website when we get it up there, about a student who in prior years would have been quickly put in an outside expensive placement because he wasn't able to handle the demands that were being placed upon him at school. Um, they loaded him up with Plan C last school year. They had only one agenda for this kid, help him feel comfortable in the classroom. That's where they started. They placed very few demands on him. He could work if he wanted to. The goal was to help him feel comfortable. Um, they got him feeling comfortable. Little by little, they started adding expectations that they thought he could handle. Little by little, with the combination of slight increases in expectations and plan B to help him meet those expectations and understand what was getting in his way, slowly but surely he began meeting an increasing number of expectations in the school classroom. This year, he's meeting lots and lots of expectations in his general ed classroom. They kept him in the building. In most schools, he would not have been kept in the building. They kept him in the building, and now he is meeting more and more expectations. Now, the principal, whose name is Nina DeAaron, Central School in South Berwick, she said, now, you know, there were times when he'd run out of the classroom, run down the hall. And that didn't go over real well with teachers who were not quite yet on board with the model and who had legitimate concerns about a kid running down the hall. And yet, those teachers have now seen what happens when you, for certain students, dramatically reduce expectations, plan C, so as to stabilize things and slowly but surely begin adding expectations back with plan B, helping you come up, helping you understand what's been getting in the student's way on those expectations and helping engage the student in coming up with solutions. 
He's still in the building. He's doing well. And Plan C was a big part of that. So going back to our email, um, does Plan C make sense? Um, Yeah, if it's a stabilization Plan C and we are um, paying very close attention the expectations that we're placing on this student and reducing them dramatically as an act of stabilization so as to keep a student in the building and so as to get a better sense of what he can handle and what's getting in his way. then Plan C makes a great deal of sense. What do you think of that? Here's one more I think we have time for. And this is one that um, we discuss frequently, but that's okay. Hi, Dr. Green. As a researcher in inclusion, I'm writing to you after having been introduced to your work by one of my students um, from Aalborg, Denmark. Hi there. Looking forward to coming back. I'm primarily studying preschool settings, and I would like to know if you have done any work on this age group. Wondering how it would be possible to apply your approach to an institutional setting around these young children. Do you have any experience with this? I do. Um, This is something I wish we had spent a little bit more time on in the conference because a lot of people who work with children who are delayed in the language processing and communication realm wonder how this model can be applied to those kids, or even if it can. Um, We we don't want to assume that just because a kid doesn't have language processing and communication skills, language processing skills, that the child isn't capable of participating in the process of clarifying and solving the problems that affect him or her. I think we often sell those kids short. Are there some kids who don't really even conceptually understand what a problem is? Yes, but that can be taught. We can we can start labeling things as problems so that we create the folder in the hard drive that is that child's brain for what constitutes a problem in the same way, as I've talked about before, that we would create a folder for animals and help the student increasingly 
um, come to recognize that different animals are different animals and that they make different noises. We can create another folder, the solutions folder, and help students who didn't realize that what you do with a problem is try to come up with solutions. We can create a solutions folder and we can we can concretize solutions for them. There are, believe it or not, not that many solutions to the problems we humans encounter. Do it a different way. Give a little. Ask for help. Being some of the major categories. If the student doesn't have words, we can create pictures to depict those solutions, and we can create pictures to depict the problems that are reliably and predictably getting in the student's way. We can do all of that without words. The reliance on words is mostly an issue of what we adults are most comfortable with, but kids who are nonverbal or have very limited verbal skills are communicating. We can see if we can tap into the ways in which they are presently communicating to see if there's ways to communicate about three things in particular, unsolved problems, concerns about those unsolved problems, Solutions, no different than creating a folder for animals. That's the first thing we do with very young kids. We create the animal folder. Then we label different animals and have visual images associated with those labels. Then we pull the string on that machine, that little plastic thing that all of us got at one point along, or, or, or the other, you pull the string and this child is now learning that the animal called the pig says oink. The problem of being thirsty has a solution called water or juice, or whatever, it's pretty much the same type of training. And it's being done in pictures. How long will it take? Some kids a very long time. And if we don't put the long time in, some kids a lot less time than people think it's going to take, I should add. If we don't put the time in, then going back to the very first thing I said, we are basically saying that we don't believe that this student can participate in the process of solving the problems that affect him or her. And then solving those problems is completely reliant on us adults. And if the student never learns how to do it, then the student will always be completely reliant on adults for solving problems. 
and um, I uh, haven't met a kid who I've come to that conclusion on, and that's how it's done. Over time, as the student becomes more fluent with their new problem-solving language, whether it's in the spoken word or in pictures, the problem-solving can expand and become more complex and sophisticated and nuanced. All progress is incremental, but you've got to start somewhere. Problems, concerns, solutions. Thanks for listening in today. I hope, as always, that you have found the program to be informative. We'll be back next week with the Educators Panel. Look forward to talking to you then. Take care.